0: And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore,
1: And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis Day. It is sunny, but it is getting cold, Don.
0: We are cold earlier than usual this year. We've actually, on our farm, now remember we're out in the country, outlying area, as the (laughs) weather folks like to call it. We had a very, very light frost on Sunday morning. The official temperature is about 35. I barely saw the sparkling of it, but I knew it had happened because I walked around the corner of my vegetable garden where the sweet potatoes are and the foliage was black, completely black (laughs) and the tops have been killed, which means it's time for me to harvest sweet potatoes. Uh, We also had a very light frost on Monday morning and on Tuesday morning, I was able to actually get a picture of it. This is, I always take a picture of the earliest frost and the latest frost of the year if I possibly can, because it's a great reference point to go back previous years and look and see when it happened. October 29th is by far the earliest date I've ever taken a picture of frost uh, in the Sacramento Valley in all the years I've been living here. That doesn't mean it didn't happen some other year, but certainly the earliest I've ever taken a picture of it. And it was not officially you're, You're
1: You're in the country, so that doesn't surprise me that you would see frost before other things. But Don, I saw frost on the house across the street.
0: Yeah, frost. Not sure which
1: morning it was, but it had a frosty roof.
0: Yeah, surfaces, uh, top of your car, things like that. I was checking with other people who lived out in the country and they saw the same thing. I did a very fleeting frost. No, this doesn't mean everything is endangered. It doesn't mean that you've got to rush out there and cover plants by any stretch. In fact, even tropical plants by my front door were unfazed by it. It was out in the open, open to the sky, out in the country. We got down cold enough to see a visible frost. And in town, most people got to about 35 to 37 degrees degrees and um, you know this is an important temperature threshold for oh that house plant that's on your front porch your ficus you better decide whether it's going to come in or stay out this year Um, but we're getting a lot closer a lot faster temperatures dropped very rapidly if you consider that only two to three weeks ago we were hitting 90 degrees temperature high temperatures for this week today uh, which is november 1st 2023 as lois and i are preparing the broadcast we're going to go up to a high of 75 degrees and uh, tonight's low partly cloudy keeping some of the heat trapped will be 42 degrees. Thursday is partly sunny. Thursday night is mostly cloudy, 48 degrees. We've got sort of a weak series of storms passing over us over the next several days. Friday will be partly sunny and 73 degrees. Friday night 55 degrees with a chance of showers. Saturday has about a 50% chance of showers, but it's going to be 67 degrees. So not, you know, particularly cold, just a early light rain not a whole lot coming out of this saturday night also a chance of showers mostly cloudy and it's only going to get down to about 55 because of the cloud cover sunday 50, 67 degrees chance of showers monday chance of showers tuesday chance of showers each of those days 65 66 67 degrees and dropping down to 49 or 50 at night so the coldest event has just happened or is happening right now. Kind of a wake up call for some of those things that are out there that you might want to protect. In other words, move them closer to the house if they're that kind of a plant. It's also seasonal change over time. You're going to start losing your impatience and other plants that are truly frost sensitive. And it's time to start thinking about putting in winter color to replace that. As far as the vegetable garden goes, this will not have any effect on the things you've planted for the cool season. In fact, most of the plants that are going in now, lettuce, broccoli, things like that, improved somewhat by chilly nights the flavor is improved and it's sunny enough during the day for them to continue growing so nothing to be concerned about but worth noting that our usual first frost in all the years i've been here is typically around thanksgiving so this year is more like halloween that's three four weeks ahead of schedule yeah
1: so I sent on this picture because I I saw it in the the newspaper. It gave me a giggle, but then I thought, you know, this is serious stuff. And the picture shows a rock and a flower and the flower is going, oh, I'm not feeling good. Oh, no, it's about that time of year. I'll see you in the spring. And And the rock says, you have a weird way of hibernating. And I thought, now, that's kind of funny, but. You know how do plants go from one season of growth to the next season of growth? How do they make it through the winter? And different species do different things. Obviously, the tree doesn't fall down and resprout. At, at well, tropical, not. truly but,
0: tropical tree, truly tropical plants can't go below about sixty degrees. Uh, they start to have significant adverse effects. Um, hardy but plants, they don't,
1: but they don't come back. necessarily. So so how do they in the habitat they'd like to be in, how Hmm. do they make it through the winter?
0: typically short answer is that metabolic pathways change within the plant to create things that act as natural antifreeze. I guess that's the best answer I can give you. So it even happens within the leaf of a kale. It even happens within uh, some of the other things that we eat, where they'll create sugar instead of starch, which acts as a better antifreeze. So they they basically, antifreeze is something that allows a solution to go colder than the freezing temperature of water, and they do that themselves. They uh, The leaves, of course, will typically upsize and fall off or just Get look like they get burned off by the freezing weather. But the plant has developed adaptations to have chemicals in it that prevent freezing, at that temperature, they can go down to lower temperatures and the and how far down they can go varies. That's obviously the factor in hardiness right there is whether a plant can go down 10 or 15 degrees below freezing or whether it can go 40 degrees below freezing, which is a whole different level of adaptation, or whether it just has enough of the sugars and starches in the stem to keep it from freezing at 29, but 27 might be too much. And this gets really important question with certain plants When we're stretching zone boundaries.
1: Well, you're talking about trees and shrubs and bushes and things that are hard and have a a persistence, but then there's things that you don't see in the wintertime. Either Mm. they they die back and there's something still coming going on underground, or they just die.
0: Well, those are, so, yes, those are annuals, which completely die <laughs> with gold. Uh, and we have a lot of those that we grow as garden flowers or garden vegetables. Many of them are subtropical or even truly tropical plants that we we simply know we're growing out of their range and they'll go until it gets too cold and they'll die. So I just had a question from someone who has said his marigolds are looking great. It's October. Can he get them through the winter? Well, it's a subtropical plant. I suppose in theory you could. You could bring it into a greenhouse. You could bring it closer to a house. I get this question every year about peppers and tomatoes. As well, which again, 32 degrees is going to injure them. 29 or 30 degrees is almost sure to completely kill them. But if you can protect them from that, that's not an a true annual. It's not a plant that grows, flower, seeds, dies. It's a plant that simply is killed because of temperatures that are colder than what it's adapted to. So you could, in theory, bring that through. Now, many herbaceous perennials, which look like soft tissue plants, chrysanthemums, things like that, um, there's a, a gr- the growing points are down at ground level. The growing points for next year are already there, relatively protected by a bunch of sheath-like leaves that are covering the bud and and protecting them. Some of them are even rather woody, and they wait until spring stimulates them to grow, which is probably mediated by hormones, more, more likely than anything. And so they'll just rest. If it gets really cold, those buds may be killed. So people who garden in Montana know that there's some herbaceous perennials they can grow. And something they can't grow and a big factor there my guess would be is whether there's a nice layer of snow over these plants providing a thermal blanket you know it's freezing but it's you, above the temperature that would injure the plant because the plant has the natural antifreeze in there so that's how or you
1: or are. you pile leaves on top i mean yeah, that's something or, that, was, or, that happened a lot back in wisconsin
0: nature piles leaves on top yes it's a excellent adaptive strategy for something that grows in a very cold deciduous forest is to have your growing points under A foot and a half of leaves through the course of the winter with a nice layer of snow on top of that. So the air temperature doesn't really matter to that plant. It's the temperature down at ground level. So obviously the plants have devised a a number, devised, I'm getting anthropomorphic here, a number of strategies have been developed evolutionarily, which can help the plant get through a period that would injure soft tissue, injure new growth, injure flower buds, and it keeps them from happening until the temperatures are more suitable. Some of that is natural antifreeze, some of it is physical protection of the growth buds by overlapping layers of leaves leaf-like structures or, or tight buds that are down at ground level and covered up with something so there's a variety of ways um, and, then,
1: and then there's the ones that don't have anything left at ground level and they've got something stored underneath the ground but yes. that neophytes. thing will come back
0: neophytes which are again even you know a couple inches down now there are places i'm told where some of the soil freezes in the winter. I've never personally experienced this, but a top couple inches may actually freeze. If a bulb is down six inches down, it probably doesn't even get to freezing there, especially if there's a nice, again, thermal blanket over the top of that of some sort of leaves or snow or all of the above. Probably the most difficult places to garden are the high deserts because they don't have that layer of snow, and it is bitingly cold. I've been in the Mojave Desert when it was 20 degrees. Aside from the fact that it's a desert, (laughs) so there's not much growing there in the first place, there's nothing to protect the planet ground level, because there's no layer of snow. So that 20 degrees is pretty close to what any planet ground level is experiencing. So the high deserts, it really impresses me when people can garden in Bend, Oregon spokane washington uh places in idaho or montana you've really got to search out your hardy tough perennials and of course your bulbs and things like that that work for you they exist i'm sure if i lived there i would have a lovely garden from june through september i'm not sure what you do the rest of the year let us know send us a note at davisgardenshow at gmail.com
1: you go sledding
0: I guess, yeah. Yeah.
1: Letting (laughs) snowshoeing, that sort of stuff.
0: Actually, talking to someone who lived in a snowy climate one time, they said it is kind of nice, actually, to have everything covered up and clean looking. Oh, yeah. And all that's up there
1: are those beautiful pine trees and cedar trees and, you know, all those evergreens up there. It's lovely.
0: What what do you do to garden from, I don't know. You don't
1: garden. you, you, You enjoy what you harvested in the fall.
0: You read sat. So, you read, read that, seed catalogs and yeah. uh, dream about next spring. There you go. Okay. So w-
1: one one last thing. So we've done trees. We've done bushes. We've done things that are on the ground. Things that are under the ground. But what we haven't talked about are those poor little things that are going to just croak. I mean, they're not that. That plant is gone. It ain't coming back. And so they have to have reproduced. Before they croak, otherwise there aren't going to be more of them. So if if something has seeds, you know, it it flowers and it seeds and it scatters its seeds. Here's the question from from me. When it scatters its seeds, it's sometime in the summer or fall, whenever it does it And those seeds, if they if they sprouted right away they would grow up and they would get killed for the winter. I, so how does the seed know when <laughs> it's okay to sprout?
0: Again, we're That's anthropomorphizing. The this the seed doesn't know anything, but the um, the evolutionary strategy is, it, once you take courses in plant propagation or start embarking on the practice of it, you will quickly learn that seeds have a range of different requirements to germinate. And when we get deliveries of seeds that we're going to be starting to sell seedlings at our at our garden center first thing we do is look up does this seed need to be stratified scarified does it need fire does it need something to loosen the seed coat so there's a bunch of things inhibitors in the seed coat are a simple one so carrot seeds for example if you plant them without doing anything can take as much as six weeks to germinate same thing with No, but you soak them there's a chemical in the seed coat that inhibits germination and you leach that out and of course what would leach that out in nature would be a winter's worth of rainfall or snow or something like that so a certain amount of just rinsing to get the inhibitor out of the seed coat some of them need scarification there is actually a a, a chemical process in the plant that it prevents germination unless they've been stratified, which means the seed has been taken down, just like fruit trees, down to a certain temperature and then back up, it will then sprout. So you take those seeds and you put them in a medium and you put them in your refrigerator. And the instructions you get will tell you whether it's four weeks, six weeks, three months. Uh, we're doing some camellia seeds that a customer gave us and we found online that two to three months stratification is required. But that's interesting, all you'd really have to do in California then is plant this in a pot in November set it outside where it gets rained on and gets exposed to a winter's worth of cold it'll probably come up in about february so that's exactly (laughs) how that's exactly how that plant protects its seedlings um so those are two common methods and in california it's not so much a temperature related i'm guessing as fire or weather related you don't want a seedling sprouting from a plant that just went to seed in may in california you don't want it sprouting in june it wouldn't have any water so you want it to lie there somehow getting abraded by wind or something but just being exposed to the elements uh until you get past the dry summer so, so
1: when the, the okay. rains come that right. could trigger it
0: right in some cases it requires fire There are actually mm-hmm. fire uh, and this is a very interesting area of study for people working on southern california species for example Tory pine i grew up Real close to Torrey Pines State Reserve down there in Southern California. And the seeds were disseminated widely because the Torrey Pines had basically almost been logged to extinction. And the idea was, as with so many cases like that, try to get people growing them in their yards at least. So there's more of this species around. Every house in our neighborhood, because the guy who founded the Torrey Pines Park was a resident of our neighborhood, every house in our neighborhood, he gave the new homeowner a one gallon Torrey Pine tree. And all oh, of us. Nice. Yeah, all of us planted them. So we also learned from him, he was a fascinating naturalist, that the way he got them to germinate, since they require fire to germinate, was he would blue put, them, torch,
1: on, man, yeah, put torch. them on the
0: ground with a torch <laughs> and put <laughs> rain and go rapidly over them like a fast-moving fire, because you stay there too long, you'll incinerate it. And that would just crack the seed coat a little bit, enough to get them to sprout. So it was a process of scarification that was caused by fire. Later, researchers found that smoke would take care of it. It didn't Good. actually have to have fire. So this tells you that it's a chemically mediated or hormone you know, oh. mediated process in the seed. If just the smoke was enough and not the fire, huh? Interesting. In case of Tori Pines oh. and certain other fire lupin's Lupins um, and many things in that family, the legume family, need have a hard seed coat that simply needs to be softened or broken somehow, or else they just won't push through. And so. Nail files can, is what we were using. You can file individually, real quick file. You can soak them in something. You can put them in boiling water briefly, you know, pour, bring water to a boil, put it in a in a bowl, put them in the very hot water, let it come to room temperature. That'll soften the seed coat. So that's simply a hard seed coat that it'll take three, four or five months for the seed coat to abrade somehow from wind or moving around on, on a sandy soil or something to to have it finally ready to germinate. With that first rain that comes along in october so that's basically what it is seeds have a variety of methods and plant propagation a big part of it i always like to joke is empirical research which the rest of us call trial and error and you go ahead and try different things if we'd get a batch of seeds when i worked in the botanical conservatory we would routinely get plant propagation starts from all over the world from other botanical conservatories in the days before there was even personal computers much less the internet and so we just had a few reference books and in would arrive in would come packages of seeds so if we didn't know what to do exactly we would split them in three or four we take some of them and put them on a warm bench because some seeds need warm temperatures to germinate. We take some of them, put them on a mist bench because that would help to soften the seed coat or remove the inhibitors. We take some of them, just put them in a pot right in the greenhouse. And some species, we think this probably needs outdoor exposure for that stratification process. We take them and pot them and just put them out in the shade house outside. Sometimes none of those things worked. Sometimes all of them worked. And sometimes it was one very specific thing. The most common, for those of you trying this at home, was the need for bottom heat even warm temperatures at the time of germination. If you're starting something and you don't know for sure, you've got a seedling mat that you use for your tomatoes, for example, just put them on bottom heat and you'll be surprised how many of them will germinate. And mist benches are absolutely magical because they will remove the inhibitors that are in the seed coat, they'll leach them out. They also prevent pathogens because there's a constant over, what a mist bench does is you have a timer that comes on for right at the moment, we're using 30 seconds every five minutes around the clock, small amount of water every five minutes leaching right over the seed through the fast draining medium and draining out below. Keep that in mind when you locate at your There's your water flowing out of it. What that would do was remove any inhibitors in the seed coat and prevent uh, seedling diseases because the water flowing over would just take off any spores that land. And so it's almost like a natural uh, fungicide, if you will, uh, to run it in this kind of a system. It's a little complicated, but if you happen to be over at my nursery, you poke your head around the side on the west side of the building, you'll see this very simple mist bench that we set up. $35 timer was all it took to operate it. And that is what we use for certain things that we know need or benefit from that frequent, essentially rinsing of the root zone or the seed to prevent problems, and hasten germination. I hope that that answers your question. (laughs) I think we covered everything.
1: It helps a whole lot, but you know, I'm going to get, you know me, I'm a real practical person. It's been my belief that if I'm growing something and it's doing its thing, and then it gets to seeding, that if I simply knock the seeds to the ground where I want them, Mm -hmm. um, that that should do it because in nature, These seeds would fall to the ground next to the the parent plant or blow away or whatever. But anyway, they'd just be there. And so as far as timing goes, it just seemed to me like I should just do it when the plant would have done it. Sure. That seems like a pretty natural thing, doesn't
0: it? Sure. And and a natural rate of germination percentage might be as little as one to two percent but that's all you need. Mm-hmm. In your case, if I'm growing them to sell them, I'd like a little more than one to 2%. So if you're a that's gardener, right. you want a higher percentage, you want to figure out what are the ideal conditions. There are plants like loose strife, purple loose strife is a huge weed in the United States, extremely invasive plant. Why? Because a plant can produce something like a million seeds. I mean, an unbelievable, unfathomable number of seeds. If only 1% of those germinate, it's still a lot of plants. (laughs) And so that's why it's become such a horrific plant. Massive seed production, even with a very low rate of germination percentage, can actually keep the plant going. Of course, one really simple technique is to surround your seed with a nice, soft, delicious fruit an animal will eat its entirety <laughs> and then lumber off somewhere else and poop and leave it there with a little thing of fertilizer right with it and some protective coating <laughs> over it that'll sit through the winter so there you've got a little nitrogen package for the spring you've got a protective coating around the outside you've got a hard pit typically that has to be softened or, or broken somehow by winter or extreme temperature conditions and you have a plant that has now evo- now evolved a system where it disseminates itself hundreds of yards if not miles from the parent plant and then germinates under the right conditions. So uh, bird droppings are a great example. How do you think mistletoe gets around? It doesn't fling itself. It travels in a little little package of bird guano, pop, sticks itself right to this, the branch of the next species and roots right in. So seed adaptations are amazing and there's something you have to figure out if you're trying to grow things from seed. It can be a very fun project. You're, to your point, you know, if you scatter a pound of California poppy seeds, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of seed, and 2% of them come up, you'll probably be happy. You'll, you'll have what you're after as a gardener. But uh, you know, it's a lot of wastage there if you're using massive seed production with a very small germination percentage. Sometimes that's what it takes for a species to prosper or unfortunately become invasive. That's really a key question with some invasive species. How readily do their seedlings grow and establish? There are species that are invasive in southern Florida, or Southern Texas, where it's completely frost-free, Southern California potentially, which we don't have a problem with here in Northern California, because the seedlings can't survive a winter or they can't survive a summer. Those are the two key questions. Can the seedling make it through a summer without irrigation? Okay, then it could become an invasive plant. Can the seedling make it through the winter here? Uh, If so, if a significant percentage of them can, then that species can become an invasive plant. But they're two rather different categories of plants. As far as that goes for invasiveness, I should mention a couple of those PSAs that we're supposed to do at the start of the program. KDRT (laughs) is community radio. That means we rely on contributions from folks like you to fund our operating costs. If you like what you hear, head on over to KDRT.org, KDRT.org and click on the support button. And you will find all kinds of cool programming there. Oh, let's see, we've got a whole lot of music shows. But we've also got a whole lot of what we call public affairs shows. And a recent one was I get over there. The News Cycle, which is put on News Cycle is a program done by Davis High School's Blue Devil Hub students. They dive into the spooky season in their most recent episode, which is asking Davis High students, is it OK for teenagers to go trick or treating? <laughs> Rowan interviews Spanish teacher about Dia de los Muertos and how he celebrates with his class. Another student reports on Halloween traditions, and yet another one investigates whether or not high schoolers are too old to trick or treat. That's on the news cycle. At is let's see when does news cycle run? You you say something while I find this out. Well, ad. you
1: can go to kdrt.org and look at that schedule tab and yeah, do uh... all the programs, including Don's two and my two. Well, I guess we can't say two, because this is one of them what we share. But Yeah, lots of stuff there. I wanted to make an announcement. It may not be appropriate totally, but I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. The Davis Senior Center, which is a wonderful thing in town run by the city, has every year a craft fair and sale. And this is where community members can rent a table and come and bring their stuff and sell their stuff and folks can go and buy Christmas presents or holiday presents or
0: whatever they want
1: and I'm going to be there so I'm going to take some of my small paintings and I'm going to be at the craft fair this Saturday November 4th from 9 a.m to 2 p.m at the Davis Senior Center.
0: Okay and the news cycle is 8 a.m on Tuesdays. There you go. I think it reruns a couple of times during the week as well. So I also wanna mention the big event coming up for Tree Davis. I will be emceeing this event. You can join us at Memorial Grove for our third annual legacy celebration. We'll be gathering to celebrate the accomplishments of community members that make Davis and Yolo County a great place to live. Honor our newest group of Tree Davis Stewardship Award winners. Tours of the nearby grove and a raffle. Light refreshments will be served. Fun, lively event for all that attend. It would be helpful to us so we know how many cookies to order and how much coffee to bring if you would sign up in advance. So you can go to treedavis.org. I mean, if you just show up, fine. But you can go to treedavis.org. Look at the event calendar. Sign up. It's Saturday, November 4th. 2 o'clock to four o'clock p.m looks like a chance of showers so we'll probably have a few extra umbrellas handy but you know when we're talking about this as a committee we keep talking about what if it's raining and finally we just said you know we're tree people we're outdoor people <laughs> it's fine if it's raining there'll be an awning you can stand under just accordingly anyway our very first one it was cold and rainy and everybody seemed to have a great time but anyway is this the
1: from- one that's on shasta drive Yes,
0: next uh, south of the university retirement Center the tree Davis Memorial Grove great time to head over there, by the way, if you're looking for ideas. For your landscape, because the climate ready landscaping uh, program we've been doing about three, four years now we're planting appropriate understory plants under the new trees that are being put in and right now the california fuchsias are in spectacular bloom the uh uh, buckwheat the native buckwheat is has finished its bloom but looks really cool the way it does after its bloom it's got this kind of burnt uh mahogany color to it a lot of the grass is really looking great right now so if you're looking for ideas for your own low water landscapes under your own trees Head over to the Tree Davis Memorial Grove. You can walk through at any time. Shasta Drive, just south of University Retirement Center. But I hope to see you there Saturday, 2 to 4 p.m. Okay, lots to talk about today.
1: Well, I wanted to ask you first, you, as we have been doing lately, what are you harvesting now, Don? I oh, sent what you a, available I, to harvest?
0: I just sent you a picture of something that we're harvesting right now.
1: Oh, That's a crocus. Isn't that a crocus?
0: That is a crocus, yes. And I'll probably make this the official picture with the uh, Davis Garden Show page there at kdrt.org. Blooming yesterday morning right in front of our nursery. Hopefully one of the staff will harvest it before somebody else does because this is one of the highest value um, herbs, spices in the world is saffron. Saffron crocus. Crocus sativus, is a beautiful fall-blooming crocus with a, I would describe it as a medium purple flower and a bright orange-red flower part which is the saffron and once you look at that and you realize what it takes to harvest it getting down crouching down there picking them one by one you begin to realize why this is such an expensive spice it has a very distinctive flavor saffron is unique it's used in a lot of special dishes like paella uh, saffron rice things like that imparting not just color but a very very special flavor and aroma and it is a bulb it is a type of crocus unlike the crocus most people are thinking of which are spring blooming crocus sativus. by the way sativas just means eaten Edible. It just, when you see sativus as part of a botanical name, that just means this is the one we eat. And Crocus sativus is a fall-blooming crocus, bloomed here, obviously, in late October into early November. It's a Mediterranean bulb, quite easy to grow in California, hard to get a hold of. There's never good availability on this plant, but we've had it off and on over the years in smaller and larger numbers. Various bulb specialists will certainly sell it. And my experience with saffron crocus is that the plants in full sun... In fairly dry summer locations can go on 10 to 12 years or more increasing until finally they kind of play out or something crowds them out they're, they're just down at ground level so competition isn't great but I put some under my young ginkgo tree many years ago and they went on for over a decade until eventually got shaded out and other things grew into that area when I've taken bulbs and planted them in enriched garden beds that are more lightly shaded they grow great the first year and you harvest Frequently from several blooms and they'll often grow very well the second or third year, but they're just repeating not increasing. It's not optimal. but It's okay. You still get your money's worth. Let me tell you, because you get just a handful of saffron that more than pays for the bulbs. If you happen to know what the price of saffron is. So I have done better with them in sunny places that are dryish in the summer, which is a real good generalization for flower bulbs here. Uh, tulips hyacinths when i've planted those which i generally tell people don't repeat here but when i put them in my garden where they're not irrigated in the summer or only irrigated every i don't know several weeks like with a tree nearby they tend to come back, whereas when they're in an area where they're getting lots of garden watering because i'm planting flowers and things like that they tend not to come back they probably are rotting out will be my best guess. So crocus sativus will grow in a garden grow in a pot easy to do in a container will multiply in a container just let it go dry in the summer. Great out in your sunny garden border and once again, as with so many bulbs, a really good addition to a low water landscape. So as you're changing over your lawn to perennials and natives and things like that, well, no, this isn't native, but it certainly goes well with low water plants in a very low water landscape, as do daffodils, as do botanical tulips, as do the other kinds of crocus. Just put them out there. They live on winter rainfall. They might need a little more in a severe drought. But other than that, they typically don't need any extra care on your part. As you're shopping for bulbs, look for ones that where the retailer has used the term naturalizes, naturalizes freely. That might mean invasive, but more typically what it means is not only comes back, not just, you know, six blooms year after year, but increases. My February gold Narcissus daffodils that I put in in the 1980s, where I put either six or 12 bulbs, I can't remember, I now get 50 or 60 blooms in that spot. They have spread, increased, and even reseeded a little bit nearby. Many other daffodils that I've planted go for three four years and then sort of peter out. Perhaps I should be dividing them or something like that. But the naturalizes freely is a great term to look for on bulbs as you're buying bulbs right now.
1: So as you said, most cro- crocus uh, bloom in the spring. Yes. In fact, most bulbs seem to bloom in the spring. If you want to have summer or fall blooming bulbs or winter blooming bulbs now there's a, a thought um, I I know a few I know the that red spider lily it blooms in the summer, late summer that's ago. a good one um, I know the naked ladies and others like that will mm-hmm. will bloom in the early fall and then we've got this crocus in the late fall and then in the winter we've got cyclamen. Mm-hmm. What other bulbs can you think of that bloom not in spring?
0: Heavily planted uh, South African species here in California, so Crocosmias and Tritelias and Montbricias, which are all very similar, Watsonias, uh, those are all planted in the spring for bloom in the late spring or summer, depending on the species. Uh, So those are some good examples there. Bulbs from South Africa in particular, which we can grow, but many other parts of the country, they're too tender to grow, are great choices for summer bloom. And then... um, you've mentioned the other ones amaryllis belladonna which blooms that's the naked lady bloomed in august this confuses people i'm selling amaryllis bulbs right now i'm selling amaryllis bulbs it's a common name what i'm selling is Hippiastrum, which we call amaryllis that's the one that blooms for the holidays because we're forcing it to do that that's not the pink one the lois was referring to that's the so-called naked lady which is the true amaryllis belladonna This is a case of botanical names and common names becoming thoroughly intertwined. But uh, when you're seeing amaryllis bulbs at a garden center right now, even in many cases, beginning to push their flower spikes for bloom for the holidays, that is a different plant, Hippiastrum. It's grown in the Southern Hemisphere, where I buy them from Peru, and they come up here and they think summer is here. You put them in a pot, they bloom for Christmas reliably, or I get them from the Dutch. Who grow big dramatic i mean really impressive bulbs they've been forced into dormancy and will bloom for christmas or maybe valentine's and sometimes easter they've got a mind of their own i've found that these south southern hemisphere amaryllis are reliable and the ones from the netherlands give you big spectacular blooms on their own schedule whatever that might be all of those if you're listening in our area or anywhere like usda zone 9 or of course zone 10 they can just be put out in the garden after you're done and they'll come back and bloom next year in the summer early summer uh before the amaryllis belladonna or so-called naked lady bulb which blooms in midsummer. so there's two plants called amaryllis and it gets to be somewhat <laughs> confusing it's very hard and to we
1: find. can grow them all
0: we can grow them all and the amaryllis belladonna multiplies freely here i'm selling them out of to people when i because i can't get them from any purveyors i i have hundreds on my farm i just go out right after the bloom dig a bunch of them up bring them in and sell them to people who want them they naturalize quite readily these are from bulbs my mother gave me back in the 1980s each bulb that i planted is now 20 or 30 in that location the amaryllis that are for the christmas planting will increase very slowly you're not going to get a giant stand of them but they'll just come back and bloom on their own in early summer which is a lot easier than trying to force them into bloom the next year if you want them to bloom for the holidays by a southern hemisphere grown hippiastrum, astrum how many amaryllis bulb plant it now it'll almost surely be blooming by christmas if you get those big dutch ones they're great you can see the bulb the flower thing ready to go it'll be very impressive i've just found i had one that didn't bloom until um, memorial day which was cool nice to have a flower then but not what i was expecting <laughs> so, okay
1: so i i'm gonna go back in our show, rewind and ask you this question again. Don, what are you harvesting these days?
0: Well, we started with crocus sativas, and that is a very specific thing that you harvest right now. Um, Right now is when walnuts and pecans are coming down on my property, and uh, I've got some wonderful ones out there. I have a franquette, which is a very sweet-flavored walnut. I have the Robert Livermore, which is a red-kerneled one. It's a cross between the Chinese and the English walnut, unique uh, kernels and then the pecans aren't actually falling yet but the holes are splitting and so if I want to get any of them before the jays and the ground squirrels do I just walk up and pull them out of their holes because once they hit the ground let me tell you nothing disappears faster than a pecan on the ground on my farm I could see it there walk back an hour later and it's gone I didn't even see the ground squirrel much less the 37 turkeys that are wandering my property at any given time two other things I'm harvesting right now that are interesting uh roselle what's roselle The hibiscus. It is hibiscus that is grown for tea. It is the hibiscus that is primarily grown for hibiscus flower tea you can make hibiscus tea out of other species but roselle is a particular species of hibiscus where it's not even the flower so much as the sepals the calyx the the very fleshy red part that holds the flower which is pretty enough it's a little hibiscus flower it's very richly flavored and very bright dramatic magenta pink so it makes a very attractive tea and makes a nice complement to other herbal teas it's a very easy plant to grow if you've got a long summer which we certainly do. You plant this when the soil is warm, so you wait until pepper planting season to put it in, so that's basically May or June is fine. Uh, A single plant will grow, in my case this year, to about five feet by five feet. You wonder if it's ever gonna flower because it's growing, it's red stem, reddish green leaves, very attractive plant, but you keep thinking, come on buddy it's september you better flower soon it's october you better flower soon all of a sudden about three weeks ago and i've done this before so i knew not to be concerned there's probably now 50 to 100 flower buds rapidly forming and you pick them just as they start to open and they people do dry them or just use them fresh and make them into tea so i'm harvesting that right now i wondered when this plant when i grew it for the first time as woody as it is As tough as it looked, as vigorous as it was, is this going to overwinter? Is there any chance this hibiscus actually is perennial, like, you know, like the kind that died of the ground and come back? No, no. Freezing weather kills it completely. So you start over next year. But it grows big and fast. And given the size of the plant, if someone asks me right now if it would grow in a container, I would think smallest would have to be a half barrel. I mean, it really is. It's like a five foot shrub in a single five, four month growing season. So it's got to have a deep root and almost a taproot type of thing going on there. Uh, It's a beautiful plant for the back of your herb border or next to the, you know, the edge of your vegetable garden or just in your flower border. It's actually very attractive and the flowers are very pretty and you just harvest them as quickly as you can before freezing weather. And last year I just handed them off to one of my employees who made great tea out of them. It's very, very easy to grow if you have a long, warm growing season so you might look for that Roselle hibiscus
1: when you do make a tea out of this does the tea freeze because i mean obviously if if you need to use a fresh flower and you can oh. only use it that day can you freeze the tea
0: i never even thought of that that's brilliant i'll make ice cubes out of it <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's a good plan that's i think you've a good come plan.
0: And the other thing that I'm harvesting right now, because the foliage all froze off, is sweet potatoes. So for those of you that have never grown sweet potatoes, that's when you harvest them. It's the easiest time to figure it out. Uh, If you've never grown them before, I can now report on how much space you need. For sweet potatoes because this is actually an important consideration they need a lot of water this is also very important you plant the uh sweet potato as we did next to a fence uh or you know we'd put up for that purpose and of course we never got around to putting them up on the fence so they just ran across the ground which is fine but each, <laughs> each plant took about i have lots of space each plant took about i would say about a five foot diameter circle of solid foliage it ran out past that, but that seemed to be the working portion of the plant, about a five foot diameter circle, and uh, grows and grows and grows. If you're lucky, a couple of them might bloom, the flowers are pretty, They're, they look like a morning glory. And, uh, and then freezing weather comes along and blackens all the foliage and you start pulling up the long branches and you take a spading fork and you dig up and from each, the base of the first two I've harvested there's been about five very large sweet potatoes and a whole lot of strangely shaped medium to small ones that are also usable so each plant produced several I'll just lump that all that way several sweet potatoes and quite easily all they needed was a lot of water so I just had them on a line that I was same line I was using to establish my new orchard so they were getting watered fairly frequently. Frequently. It's pretty clear to me, just like the hibiscus, the sweet potatoes are fairly deep rooted plants. And so doing them in a container is not likely to be successful. But if you've got plenty of open ground, you can let them run across the ground, give each one five to six feet of space. If you have a fence. And you remember to put them up on the fence, you can <laughs> actually I did this the first time I grew sweet potatoes, you can then make a very attractive fence but they don't climb on their own any more than your cucumbers do. You know you've got to keep reminding them where they're supposed to be, but that's an easy way to do it so very, very productive they love our you know well drained soils here I suspect that's an important factor for those of you in the heavier soil parts of Davis. Other than that plenty of water plenty of sunshine plenty of room basically each sweet potato plant took about as much space as each of my watermelon plants. So for those of you wondering if you have room for watermelons, I put in two hills of them and I just measured uh, as I was harvesting, they needed a full five foot diameter circle to produce two watermelons on each hill which is good. They were 15-pound watermelons. I mean, they're very impressive. They were wonderful. Think about your garden. Think about whether you have a five-foot diameter area for foliage that won't be com- getting any competition or shade from anything else. That's really important for watermelons. If you have that, it'll be great. They're really easy to care for. Deep-rooted, obviously. I don't plant them until the soil is very warm. I water them very deeply as if they were, again, they are on the same line as a young orchard. As the sweet potatoes. they are all together. That's what you need to do to grow them. So those of you with typical backyard gardens and you really want to grow a watermelon we'll do it once do it for fun but be aware that it's probably not the most space effective vegetable you can grow or fruit you can grow there is a dwarfer type called sugar baby which is a very cool plant that maybe only needs let's say three to four foot diameter area but it can't have any competition it can't be crowded with your tomatoes or shaded by a zucchini plant and the foliage of watermelons is only about four or five inches high So you can't even have other melons that are higher with it crowding it. They need to have their own sunny location with deep watering. Fun to grow at least a couple of times. But um, again, plenty of space, plenty of water.
1: So, you know, my practical lowest brain is going, well, you know, if it needs all of that space for the leaves and the leaves aren't very tall. Well, what about planting the plant in the ground near the house, put a trellis up there and tie those leaves to the trellis not the not the fruit because that's pretty heavy I'd probably leave that on the ground but wouldn't the leaves work if they were up in the air or leaves are on do they get problematic if they get too high
0: leaves are on stems and the stems are where the fruit forms so there's no way to do what you're saying without the fruit being up off the ground now we do that with some there's
1: only two fruit and all this foliage
0: yeah but it's up you know six feet up on the vine it's in other words there's no way to do what you're talking about there is a way to do that with some melons you can do that with charente, for example a small musk melon that's about the size of a croquet ball, uh, that's not heavy enough to be a problem. If you go ahead and train that up, you can do it with pumpkins, which have sturdy, sturdy stems watermelon isn't going to work that way it's got to run across the ground because there's no practical way to train it up so there are members of that family which we're all talking about the squash melon cucumber family here cucurbitaceae that we can go vertical cucumbers make a great case in point small melons work I have done it with pumpkins uh, small ones first and then I tried it with some big old jack-o-lantern pumpkins and pumpkins are bred to have sturdy handles so they hold themselves up there any other larger melon would concern me Uh, I mean I'm sure it could be done but uh, the weight of it in the north wind would probably be an issue so basically these are things you give space to i mean one the advantage of living out in the country is there are certain vegetables you can grow that just aren't practical for other people melons that cover a lot of space sweet potatoes sweet corn those are things that take a lot of room so they're probably not your most efficient way to go there are options within each of those categories but if, you, if you've got the room for it watermelons are fun to grow there was a year kids will remember 2013 when i planted 42 watermelon plants Whoa. <laughs> a brand new garden area i a long line of drip and it was the year of the watermelon according to some garden publication so one of my main growers kelly's color grew all kinds of different watermelons i thought you know what i'm going to plant all of these i'm going to plant one of each at least one of each 42 watermelon plants each one produced at least one watermelon <laughs> okay so that's 42 watermelons i will say one it takes a lot of space two it takes a lot of water three Breeding of plants, one of the greatest areas of improvement in garden plants has been watermelons. The newer hybrids are way, way crisper, more flavorful, better textured than the very old heirloom types. I mean, I hate to disillusion people who are fond of heirloom varieties. Test it for yourself. Plant Moon and Stars, an old heirloom variety. Plant Sangria, a new hybrid. Put them in the same garden, grow them together. See for yourself. I think you'll find the grainier texture, the less sweet flavor of the older heirloom type is not as desirable as the modern hybrids. There are some cases where heirlooms have something special about them. In my opinion, with watermelons, the breeders have really made huge improvements both in yield and quality i'm not harvesting watermelons now so that was way off topic what else
1: is okay but when you're talking about all these new 42 different kinds of watermelons (laughs) do the do the folks at farmer's market actually have different kinds of watermelons will they tell you what kind it is i mean it's like is there any way to go I don't have a farm. I can't grow 42 different oh, kinds yeah, of watermelons. I'm sure. Is there a way to test them, to
0: farmers' them? Farmer's market is going to be your way because those are the folks that are going to have them. It's not, uh, you're not going to see most of these, the heirloom types in grocery stores. In fact, you know what's completely taken over the market in grocery stores is the seedless watermelons. You can hardly even find regular seedy watermelons. They're really a hassle to grow. I don't really suggest home gardeners bother with seedless watermelons. Grow some good modern hybrids excuse me my dog is attacking a cat that just walked up to my door we'll take a brief intermission here it's okay oh it's a fox oh my god it's a young fox we may just leave this in hold on i'm gonna take a picture of it there
1: (laughs) this is what you get when you live on a farm he's now sneaking out of the room to the door going to take a picture of this fox he has so much wildlife on his farm i live in the city i don't have all that hey we had a fox in our yard once about a year and a half ago
0: my dog is in a face-off with a young male fox they're staring at each other through a glass door neither is making a sound no bark and now they're leaving Two young foxes right up came right up to my sliding door as we were preparing this broadcast excuse me one more moment uh, okay. how do you know it's a male uh well it turned around and walked away
1: huh. <laughs> <laughs> well i okay. guess you can figure it out <laughs> yes, <fox> ma'am. <laughs>
0: right. good job scott go lie down we're all safe now well, what were we talking about there i think i'll leave that whole thing in the, in the oh yeah the that's show. a good one that's a good
1: one yeah um the difference between living in the country like you do with lots of space and growing things and living in town like I do with very little space and we're doing like pots so that's I think a good thing about this show is that we have lots of different range of things though I have tested Guess we don't have any normal ones huh well
0: I don't I don't need to do this, but I do frequently test different new vegetables or flowers or things in containers because I know so many of my customers are limited for space. So for example, I've grown tomatoes of all different kinds in containers to see what's the minimum size and the best soil and all that kind of thing. And we talk about that typically at the start of the season. Uh, My bottom line is if it doesn't have a one and a half cubic feet of soil, you're going to have a lot of trouble keeping it watered. So one and a half cubic feet happens to be Typical size of a bag of potting soil at a typical garden center. That's sort of the minimum for tomatoes. I will say this: if you're a fan of peppers of any kind, hot peppers or sweet peppers, I've gotten better results over the years growing them in containers than growing them out in the ground. Richer soil, more consistent watering, light shade sometimes helps with some some types of peppers. You know, so it really. And I was talking to a master gardener about this. He and I have been coming to the same conclusion now for three or four years. If you really are into peppers, and I know some people who really are. I don't mean just hot peppers. I mean just the a range of diversity what's out there you want to try a bunch of different types pretty large containers they don't have to be huge Uh, 10 gallon size, not even a 15 gallon, 10 gallon size seems to be adequate. Rich soil, look for some of these fancier soils. You can reuse them or augment them. You don't have to buy brand new fresh soil every year. Fertilize them lightly. They love it and put them where they get plenty of sun, but a little shade from the hottest afternoon sun. You'll get great results with peppers. That's generally been my best outcome is when I do that in my backyard instead of putting them out in the garden. And I've tested this in, in as much as taking the same variety in a big container or livestock trough or whatever I'm using, and then out in the garden, full sun, just watered like normal. The plants in containers in rich soil grow more vigorously, set more, yield more. It's just more satisfactory in many ways. If you don't have the space for that and you have room in your garden, you'll be okay with it. But it's one case where I've actually found More compact gardening is better for peppers in particular. Tomatoes, you've got some issues because they get root bound so quickly. So basil, easy to grow in containers. There's lots of choices. If you're limited for space and sunlight, like Lois is, then you've got a problem because there just aren't that many plants that grow well in containers in the first place and in the realm of edible things. And there aren't that many edible things that grow well where you don't have lots of sun and i know your yard is now a lovely wildlife habitat with big trees and so that's kind of a trade-off you chose to make i've had the good fortune to be able to move my vegetable garden four times in the decades that i've lived here because i have this bad habit of planting trees and shrubs in my vegetable garden and then i realize oh i shaded out that whole section well let's move south a little bit or the gophers are a nightmare over here if i move it over there They'll have to go all the way around to get to my (laughs) vegetable garden. And you know what? I I did adopt a strategy. I promise, folks, we'll come back to some actual gardening topics that are relevant to you in a moment. I decided that ground squirrels and gophers are antagonistic because they occupy the same niche. I have what I think is an historic ground squirrel warren, I guess it is, on my property uh, that goes about 900 yards diagonally down the property. And I thought, Mm -hmm. you know, if I put my new garden on the other side of that, I'd rather deal with ground squirrels in my garden any day than gophers. And I thought, okay, so I put the whole garden there anyway, because that's where it was going to go. But this was an interesting test. The the ground squirrels now make a a Maginot line, go back to your history there, (laughs) a barrier to the gophers. One did try to come in from the east side, right? Tried to come in to right about where the ground squirrel habitat, and it disappeared. It did not come any further. I think the ground squirrels are highly territorial. And- group territorial gophers are highly territorial and solitary territorial so one gopher didn't have a chance against an army of ground squirrels so that raises the next question how much of a problem are ground squirrels in the garden (laughs) and i'll tell you
1: that colony of ground squirrels has probably been there for a long time
0: oh, undoubtedly longer than this has ever been an actual formal farm yes it's a native native organism as is the the gopher i mean they've been fighting it out on our property since people you know before people settled here undoubtedly uh, but definitely they they held off the gopher so far these are initial results sample size n equals one but we'll you know we'll give you updates as time goes by <laughs> so then the question is how much of a problem are ground squirrels in the garden well they have not yet discovered that tomatoes are edible so we got along fine this year it has been my experience that sometimes these problems have a way of manifesting themselves a couple years into the project but so far ground squirrels and i are way more compatible than gophers and i i think ground
1: squirrels (laughs) squirrels eat things above the ground they they live i mean they have residences underground but then they come out and they eat things up there whereas the gophers they tunnel underneath and they take the food from under the ground. So I, I think you're going to be much happier.
0: Oh, yeah. I'd much rather share a few tomatoes if they ever figure out they're edible you know, from the ground or from the low part of the plant than have the entire tomato plant killed by something feeding on its roots. I mean, that's the big difference. Gophers do a really significant damage. I mean, I have the best fed squirrels in Solano County because there's pecans and walnuts out there. There's plenty for them to live on. That's the kind of thing they go after. But so far, my, my theory about the mutual antagonism of gophers and ground squirrels appears to have borne out. If you ever need some ground squirrels to scare off your gophers, oh, <laughs> I'll travel someone bring them to you i'm not gonna try and control on. the ground squirrels that's hopeless and that's probably why i have foxes coming up to my back doors because there's ground squirrels out there okay did well, did you
1: well, to thank you for the garden for the, yes. The squirrels and, <laughs> yes and okay, that's the Dog was doing all right so you know we're done with the what are you harvesting questions and now we? we're on to yes now, I have one. I don't have the actual question, but I have Don's answer in front of me. And it's talking about spiders. I think the question was what kind of spiders do we have, and which ones are good and which ones are bad?
0: Right. It was a question on oh, next door, probably. And this one uh, comes up every so often someone wanting to know what the spiders are that are in their yard and that's challenging by the way there aren't all that many great guides for identification but there is one that i found called spiderid.com so that's pretty easy to remember spiderid.com this person posted a picture of what looked to me like a sack spider so we'll get into that in a moment one of the first comments was the only ones you need to be worried about are black widows and brown recluse just want to say. Wow.
1: Okay, it depends on whether you've got arachnophobia.
0: Well, it depends on where you're living because I want to say this and I've said this in prepared presentations and had people fold their arms and look at me as if I was incorrect, so I went to UCANR to verify it. Um, black widows are common outdoors here you, and indoors. You see them, uh, you know, gardeners run into them. They're very reclusive. They're shy of light. They're not aggressive. Their bites usually happen when their habitat is disturbed. So the time you get you get a problem with black widows, typically, let's say you're moving a wood pile or something like that, yeah. it inadvertently gets in a place where it doesn't want to be. Uh, however, we do not have brown recluse spider of the type people are thinking of in California there are no this is a quote from ucanr.edu not me contrary to popular belief well that's putting it mildly there are no populations of the brown recluse loxosceles reclusa in California occasional one has been found brought in incidentally something like that its population is nowhere near california we have a couple of recluse spiders that exist in the desert areas of southeastern california different species not anything you have to worry about here so it is a you know it's a horrible bite when you get it but it is not any particular reason for concern the most common spider i find in my house and probably the one that this picture was of is a sac spider. And there's a bunch of different sac spiders, SAC spiders they are pretty common indoors and they roam at night as they seek prey. So you turn on the light in your bedroom, and you see this thing walking rapidly across the wall. Um, they're venomous, spiders are, and they can bite. That's very rare, but it does cause some swelling and some itching. So if you have these indoors and they're not going to go to your bed intentionally, but they're going around looking for other spiders and things to eat. They're best just moved outdoors or killed if you find them indoors because they can bite and it can hurt that's basically what it comes down to that's one of the most common ones fast moving you don't find webs. They are uh, walking across the wall going up and eating the European house spiders that are up there so that's one that's very common indoors and you sometimes will find wolf spiders indoors i grew up with wolf spiders in southern california they are they can get surprisingly large down there their bite can be painful but you've usually done something stupid like being a nine-year-old boy you're going to get bit by a wolf spider if you try to catch it and hold on to it um that's one that moves fast and also does not make webs that you're going to see so most of the spiders you find indoors move them outside kill them if you're so inclined most of them are not a real concern and they're really venomous the really dangerous ones the black widow the most common place a gardener is going to encounter them is way back under in a dark area you do see them outside sometimes crawling across the ground rapidly when something has disturbed them and they're trying to get to another safe dark place they primarily eat other spiders and similar insects and similarly sim- insects under similar circumstances but it's the kind of thing where you should be cautious as a gardener and if you are a parent and you're gardening with kids be aware that the kinds of places that they harbor are Under toys that haven't been moved for a long time piles of wood that haven't been moved undisturbed things that are dark and in a corner somewhere so wear gloves as you go out to move those things and make your kids aware of them, I will never forget. Waking up to my charming little toddler boy going daddy daddy look I found a spider which he was carefully holding with his thumb and forefinger holding over my face so that I could clearly see the red hourglass on the bottom of the black widow spider that's the way to wake up let me tell you it gets your attention very quickly um and that's when we had a long lesson about the kinds of spiders we find indoors and out so i suggest you do that at some point i always wear gloves anyway i mean i really do think if i can give one piece of advice to new gardeners wear gloves when you're gardening because not only are there the possibilities of bites by spiders that's probably the least likely thing to happen many plants cause epidermal reactions cause skin irritation some plants cause severe skin irritation many of the soils we work with contain materials that are irritating to the skin such as perlite redwood compost can cause skin rash and i just learned years and years ago since i was constantly working with a wide range of plants and a wide range of soils that if i didn't protect my hands i would get skin irritation and that right there helps to protect you from the possibility of a spider bite so they're good in the garden they are very beneficial actually the sign of a healthy garden but your young kids should become aware of what that red hourglass on the bottom of a shiny black spider means you've been listening to the davis garden show with don shore
1: and lois Richter here at kdr 95.7 in davis california